It's been a quite a, we're going through the book of Genesis, and it's been quite a journey because we started with a series of messages that were amazing and the science of creation and all of that, and that was an amazing thing. And then I got to do a few weeks, and then Kevin came along, and he's just been doing a marvelous job. Last week, uh, Kevin uh, taught chapter 15 only. We're going to look at it again a little bit uh, tonight, but I'm going to do chapter 16 and a bit of 17 as we move along. And it's interesting what I have called uh, the sermon, Where Have You Been and Where Are You Going? And you'll see why easily, or if you've read through chapter 16, you'll know exactly why, but uh, you'll see why I've called it that, and that's sort of the final question in the whole sermon. Um, Moses, of course, who wrote Genesis, wants to focus in chapter 16 on the miracle of the birth of Abram's son, who will be his heir. So all other possibilities, except a miracle, are removed. Therefore, last week, we eliminated the possibility of Eleazar being the person who Abram's line and promises are counted through. It couldn't come through that line. And so I put it on the screen, but you can look at it easy in your Bibles if you want. Genesis 15, 1 to 4. We studied them last week, but we need to have them back strongly in our memory, and you'll see why as we go through. So the first four verses of Genesis 15 read this way. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, a vision. And it says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. But, Abram said, (laughs) we just had this hope conference, and those of you that were at the conference, Dr. Ellen talked about yes, but, (laughs) over and over again as he talked us how to have hope and how to uh, to have help with our differences and all of that. And so here we have it here. Uh, God has just said to him, I am your shield and your very great reward. And so Abram, contrary to what we were taught by Dr. Ellen, says, yes, but (laughs) sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, you have given me no Children. I mean, he's talking to God. Uh, So a servant in my household will be my heir. And then it says, the word of the Lord came to him. And God said, this man will not be your heir. But, now see, we have two buts here. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. We learned from last week's teaching that Abram had not listened to what Dr. Ellen told us in our conference. He had several more doubting buts that God eliminated so that it was humanly impossible for Abram to accomplish anything apart from, and this is the point, trusting in God. And he, Abram, would need to increase his faith as we shall see when we get to chapter 17. So, Now we see a final means of ancestry is removed. 
It was part of the culture for someone to have a child through a servant or a slave, even though they were not married, uh, that child could officially become an heir of the father, in this case, Abram. From a biblical standpoint, what Abram, Abram does is not only lack of faith in God's promises, but also adultery, even though his wife was the instigator. Genesis 2.24 makes it clear that marriage, right from the beginning, was between one man and one woman for life. Now, I've been asked in the past about multiple wives and things like we see in this chapter, but you'll discover here and in chapter 30, all through the Scripture, actually, that multiple wives or having children through servants or slaves is always a catastrophe. So read the story of Solomon, for instance, the wisest and richest man who ever lived. Lots of concubines and wives, and they led him astray. His lust overcame his wisdom. And don't think that lust was not present in this story that we're looking at tonight. Lust makes men totally stupid. There's also a warning here. In the last two chapters, we have seen God do amazing things in Abram's life. He experienced a great victory in defeating Ketelormar in chapter 14. Plus, God had spoken to him directly and made a covenant with him that promised both land and ancestry. But now Abram backs, backs off his faith and reverts to his own human common sense, which turns out to be a worldwide catastrophe. What we are reading in chapter 16 happens 10 years after what Kevin taught us last week. What we are seeing is the result of trying to find shortcuts to God's will. There's an important application here. I recently investigated multiple accusations about a well-known American pastor and was greatly disappointed at what seems to be his giving in to pride and taking advantage of his huge worldwide audience and those in his church. His preaching is being undermined by his private life. Therefore, his character has been compromised. I've often said that what you do when you're alone and can do anything you want proves your real character. If it was possible, and these days it is, to be able to see what we watch on TV when we're alone at home and also have a list of places on the Internet our mouse takes us to, then everyone would know what our character is really like. It is almost impossible to keep such things secret these days. We must make an unbreakable habit of doing what is right no matter what, no matter where. There's a book I recommend uh, called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction by Eugene Peterson. It's just a fabulous book that really can be convicting. He's the man that wrote the Message Bible, but this particular book is, is one of the best. As a matter of fact, I use that phrase all the time, and some people have told me they thought that I'd come up with it. No, no, it's the title of the book. We need a long obedience in the same direction. So here's what's happened. Ten years has gone by. 
life is often just perseverance during what Howard Hendricks called the glory of the grind. Life isn't always glorious. There are many mistakes and losses and often trials and circumstances and griefs that can throw us off the highway of obedience and endurance. Abram and Sarai became impatient with God, and impatience can spawn disobedience and doubt and sin, always ending in catastrophe. So let's start with the first two verses, verse 1 and 2. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now, doesn't this sound just like the discussion Abram had with God regarding Eleazar in our opening? God made it clear to Abram, as we just read, that he was the one to father the child, and it was not going to be through the ancestry of Eleazar nor the slave woman, Hagar. But Abram could not now believe this was the way God was going to do it. He should have instructed his wife in the same way that Adam should have protected his wife in Genesis chapter 3. There are many great needs in the Christian body today. But one of the most important in the marriage relationship is the need for husbands to be spiritual men, loving their wives like Christ loved the church. That's Ephesians chapter 5. Men, we must gain the respect of our wives because of our spiritual strength and wisdom and the care for our marriage partner. So she feels secure, protected, lovingly instructed, and provided for. But, 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 wait a minute, Pastor Carl. Doesn't Ephesians also say that wives are to respect their husbands? Yes, it does. So, if she doesn't respect me, that lets me off the hook, and I get to eat the fruit of the devil along with her? God had spoken to Abraham, or Abram in this case. God had given Abram the promise of a son. Think about Sarai. Years have gone by in her household. All around her, women were having children. But she's barren, and she's 75 years old. It was Abram's calling to assure his wife that God loved her and that he, that is Abram, believed God would produce a child through her, even if it seemed impossible. But Sarai was becoming more and more depressed. Had God abandoned her? Would another woman take her place? Would Abram leave her for mine? Abram knew Sarai was humiliated in that culture because of their lack of children, which makes it more important that he assure her of God's promises and his own love for her. Instead, Abram gave in to her suggestion, therefore confirming everything she feared. Look at verse 2 again. Look at verse 2 again. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. 
go sleep with my slave, perhaps, that's a question, by the way, perhaps I can build a family through her. That's what she's saying. I mean, she wasn't sure of this. Sarai was looking for comfort from her husband. Adam needed to have listened carefully to what she was saying. Sarah had said, perhaps. She was saying, Abram, tell me that I'm okay and that God has not abandoned me and that he will fulfill his promise to us for a son. Abram was not listening. And Abram, in verse 2, says, agreed to what Sarai said. Oh, there's so much more I want to say <clears throat> than I have time for here. Certainly, there is a time to listen to our wives, of course. I personally have benefited greatly because of the wisdom of my wife, Valerie. But God has purposed that the husband in a marriage knows the Word of God and learns how to listen to his wife and encourage her. He needs to study her. First Peter tells us that. It is not, the husband isn't the boss, but someone who has agreed to love her as God loves. That's quite different than being the boss or the, you've got to do what I say. That's not the idea. If you, have to, if you have to have the attitude as a husband, you need to do what I say, then there's something wrong. And, um, well, maybe you need a little bit of help. I've had to do that a few times in my life already. But we've, we've only been married for 54 years, so starting to understand her. <laughs> so, men, lead, love, become famous in your wife's estimation. In this case, Abram ignored faith, ignored wisdom, ignored biblical marriage, and like Adam, gave in to his wife's wishes at the wrong time, and the results were catastrophic worldwide, even to this day. You see, sin has consequences, what we sow, we reap. Abram lied about his wife when he went to Egypt. It was there that they obtained Hagar, and now Egypt becomes a problem in Abram's journey yet again. Sin has consequences. Look at verse 3. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. That was not God's will. And Abram had no good excuse. And then verse 4, he slept with Hagar, and she conceived. Adam sinned. Now, it's true the culture did not forbid this, the surrounding culture. But we're Christ followers. We obey God's ways. We don't believe the end justifies the means. God's promises and our ethics are not dependent on our circumstances, but on the word of truth we talked about this past Sunday. Galatians chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 22 and 23 read this way. It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, Hagar, and the other by the free woman. That's Sarai. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. You know what that means. But his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. The promises of God. 
So verse 4 still, when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Of course she did. She's being treated like a commodity, a baby machine. It was a written law of relationships in that Mesopotamian culture that slaves were never to have a superior attitude toward their masters. As a matter of fact, it's even in the Proverbs, uh, well, something like it. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 21 to 23 reads this way. There are three things that make the earth tremble. No, four, that it cannot endure. A slave who becomes a king, an overbearing fool who prospers, a bitter woman who finally gets a husband, and here it is, a servant girl who supplants her mistress. According to this, it makes the earth tremble and it cannot endure. Hagar was acting superior to Sarai. This was worse than the previous situation, and it was Sarai's doing, but she immediately blamed Abram, who was not entirely innocent. Nevertheless, we human beings have a default program that blames others if we think that can relieve us of any consequences. So verse 5, then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. It's you. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. I mean, Sarah's turning Abram over to God. Now, this would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. What does Abram say? Your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. You know what this is called? It's called wimping out. Looking the other way. Pretending it's not happening. He has a case of denial. And then it says, Sarai mistreated Hagar. So... Hagar fled from her. Now, in a strange way, this should be an encouragement to us. Not an encouragement to sin, but an encouragement to see that God uses imperfect people. Abram, Sarai, a slave girl named Hagar, God uses imperfect human beings and deals with us in very graceful ways. That is not an excuse to sin, just the opposite. When we realize we don't deserve our salvation, we'll desire to do God's will and not sin. But when we do sin, most of you have memorized it by now, 1 John 1, 9 says, Christian, if we confess our sins, our ongoing sins, he's talking to Christians who had already become forgiven of their sins on the cross, or at least Jesus died to cover all of our sins, past and future, But on an ongoing basis, since we still have our sin nature, it says that if we confess our sins, the if here is is not, it's this, if as is the case, we confess our sins, then he, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins on a continuing basis and purify us from unrighteousness. That's an amazing thing. That's how we walk in obedience to the Lord. Even though we're going to sin, we need to be quick repenters. Nevertheless, Hagar has fled. 
she fled toward her homeland, Egypt. After several days of travel, God intervenes. I mean, God does surprising things. Here he appears to an Egyptian slave woman. Women had no rights in those days, especially slaves, but no women really did. And Egyptians were the enemies of Abram. God is no respecter of persons. If you are here tonight, you need to know that God loves you, regardless of who you are or what you may have done. He loves you and died for your sins and offers you eternal salvation by receiving Jesus, who died for you and rose from the dead. Well, now it says in verse 7 that the angel of the Lord, this is really something, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. Everybody, when they first heard this, would know exactly where that is. And the angel of the Lord, an angel means messenger, and angel of the Lord, he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai. Now, now stop and think about this for a minute. I, I, I literally sat back and I just thought, I'm trying to imagine her in a sort of semi-desert place with some water nearby, resting. She's pregnant. She'd come a fair long ways. It would have taken her a few days to get to where she was, just about to Egypt. And she's there, and she's not saying a word to anybody. And all of a sudden, this messenger, this angel appears and says to her, without any conversation from her, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from, as if you didn't know, and where are you going? And I don't think that this just went smoothly. I think she was kind of startled, at least. And she's trying to gather her thoughts. She says, well, I'm, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. And then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now, I always like to think about tone of voice. Did he say, go back to your mistress and submit to her? Oh, I, I doubt that very much. And the whole story put together, I think you can see it's not that way. That's what kept her interested. So she told him uh, what had happened. He already knew. And so he just says to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Again, we are hardwired, hardwired to run from our problems rather than face our problems. To become a Christian, we must habitually repent of sins. That means turn from the direction we may be going, she was heading to Egypt, and go back and follow God's ways. Hagar must go back and face her problems. In this case, eat some humble pie and stay where God has placed her. We live in a culture of runaways these days. We change churches because we don't like so-and-so and the way we were treated. We leave jobs or move to other cities or states or towns thinking a fresh start will change everything. If you won't do what you don't want to do that you should be doing where you are, then when you get somewhere else, the new church, the new town or job, you won't do it there either. When people come to me to tell me they are leaving the church because of some church member or pastor, 
or some family in the church, I always ask them, and I try to have a best I can, a pleasant conversation with them. I ask them this question. When you find a different church, and the same thing happens again, do you plan to leave that church? After all, all churches have a family or pastor or person like the one here. So outside of a criminal act or on biblical doctrine, it's hard to imagine a good reason to leave a church unless the present church sends you to fulfill a calling from God. When I was putting this together this afternoon, uh, yesterday mostly, um, I stopped and started to just laugh to myself in my office. I'm going back like, how many years would it be? Like 35 years at least. And I'm in my office, and this particular man who came to church here at that time, a younger man, and uh, he was very intense and managed to have a lot of arguments with just about anybody. He was no respecter of persons that way. And he came into the office, and I didn't think of a name that, I hope there's nobody here by this name. And he says, I can no longer stay here at this church. That, uh, anybody named Henry? Oh, good. That Henry, Henry just drives me crazy. And so I'm leaving the church. And I said, no, just, okay, just quiet down. I mean, he was using some other language, too, that I don't use in sermons or any place, or any place else. <laughs> and he, he said, he just, uh, I said, just settle down here a little bit. So just settle down. When you leave and go to another church, there's going to be a Henry there too. What are you going to do? And he just blew up. Every place I go, there's a Henry. I've been to this church and this church and this church, and there's always a Henry. And, uh, well, I was glad he left, to tell you the truth. He never did come back, and was really, really sad, though, and it really is sad that he eventually had tried a couple other churches, and he, as far as I know, doesn't even go to church anymore. We have to stop that. We need to stay in the trouble we are in until God moves us, and that takes wisdom, spiritual growth, obedience, and most of all, faith. I've always made it a principle of my life never to leave where I am or what I am doing unless it is clear to me and other wise people that I should leave. Now, if you've been here for a long time, you already know I have left many jobs and moved many times, even countries. But I'm confident that if you knew all the reasons I did so, you would agree with my decisions and after marriage with our decisions. God will always offer us encouragement when we stay where he has placed us. Now, just to be clear, I don't want to be misunderstood here. I'm not saying it is always wrong to change jobs or churches. I'm only saying we must seek the Lord's will and listen to wise counsel from others before we do so. But now we we need to go back by the spring of water and the angel and uh, Hagar. And uh, in verse 10, the angel says, added, verse 10. I will increase your descendants, Hagar, so much that they'll be too numerous to count. This has to just blow her mind. She doesn't really 
understand or believe what he's saying. Although she will see in a moment, she ends up really believing it. So this is the same for her, the slave girl, as the promise to Abram. Now, last week, Kevin had a great illustration of God taking Abram and asking him to count the stars as they represented the uncountable descendants Abram would have. And he used a fabulous illustration and talked about the billions or stars and all of that kind of stuff. In verse 11, the angel of the Lord also said to her, you're now pregnant. Now, we don't know if she was pregnant that he could see that, but he, he couldn't have known the rest. Uh, the angel of the Lord also said to her, you're now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. In other words, he's saying it's too late to leave. You were chosen and must stay to fulfill your purpose. That's what he's saying. And then he says, you shall name your son that you're pregnant with, Ismail, for the Lord has heard of your misery. And, and she had to be very, very miserable, even frightened at this time. Again, the same as the promise to Abram. The name Ismail means God hears. This would remind Hagar of her encounter with God here, and later we'll see in chapter 17. And then when she finds herself in difficulty, the very name of her offspring, her son, would always remind her that God hears her prayers. I don't have any doubt she was praying. And now she's learning more and more about who she should pray to. But there are significant differences between Ishmael and Abraham, Isaac, and on. No land was promised to Hagar. No worldwide blessing was promised to Hagar. Ishmael would not be part of the salvation message God was sending to the world through Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and finally Jesus. But she would have a son, and he would be decidedly independent. Look at verse 12. He will be like a wild donkey of a man. Uh, the wild donkey uh, being talked about here in that day was, was very large, almost as large as a horse, and was truly wild. So he'll be a wild donkey of a man, free, independent, and strong, you would say. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Now, the Arab nations are born out of Ishmael's ancestry. And anyone who knows history or watches the news today is aware of the consequences of this sinful situation so long ago. Abram's two sons are still causing troubles. In Islamic thought, Ismail was the firstborn son, and according to their tradition, Abram and Ismail established the holy shrine in Mecca, and Ismail was to be the heir of the promise of the land. Islam rejects what the Bible says about Isaac. That is why we will never really have any peace in the Mideast until Jesus returns. At this time, God has divided the world between Jews and non-Jews. But this story makes it clear that God cares for those who are not of the ancestral line leading to Jesus. Paul, in his epistles, stated clearly that when Jesus first came to this earth, all racial or ethnic distinctions disappeared as far as salvation is concerned. 
Galatians 3.26, and on. It says, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, it literally says, that's the New Living Translation that I was using here, but for you all are sons, it says, of God. And the reason sons is, that is the word in the Greek. And the reason it is, is only sons could inherit. Only sons could inherit. And so this is a, a bigger deal than we would think of it. So it's, in other words, it's really saying, for you're all inheritors of God, sons of God, uh, through faith in Christ Jesus, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism, baptism doesn't save you, but it confirms what you already believe, have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. And I've added, nor Arab or Asian or any other racial distinction or ethnic distinction. There's no longer slave or free, doesn't matter, male or female. They're both sons of God in the sense of inheritance. For you are all one in Christ, the Messiah, whose name is Jesus, which means the one who saves. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. We're all sons, true sons of Abraham. We're inheritors of all the promises and, of course, of the new covenant. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abram belongs to you if you know Jesus Christ. That's thrilling to think about. So there are no people groups who are eliminated from the salvation that came through Abram's ancestry through Isaac. So it is certainly not just Arabs that are born in sin, but according to Genesis 3, we are all sinners from the day we were born, equal in sin at birth and equal in opportunity to be forgiven of our sin at the cross. But now we're in for a surprise. We discover that the angel or the uh, messenger of the Lord is actually the Lord himself a pre-incarnate manifestation of God the Son, Jesus. And the majority of conservative commentators agree with this, but it's obvious in the Hebrew text. Look at verse 13 and 14. Start at verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord. That's the word Yahweh who spoke to her. So she's going to give a name uh, to God? Now, I, I just have to say this because it truly is amazing. Hagar was the only person, male or female, in the Old Testament who conferred a name on God. Isn't that something? So here's what the Lord is saying. or You are the God, or what she is saying. You are the God who sees me. Now, let me just... just I transliterated the Hebrew here, but you are the God. You are El Roy who sees me. You're El Roy who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one, and that's a personal word, a person who is personal with a capital O. In all your Bibles, it should be a capital O, who sees me. You're the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It means the well of the living one who sees. That's what it means. 
And it's still there when Moses wrote this between Kadesh and Bered. Uh, the Living Bible, I know it's not a translation, it's a uh, paraphrase, but I like the way it puts verse 13. Uh, Therefore, thereafter, Hagar spoke of Yahweh, for it was he who appeared to her as the God who looked upon me, for she thought I saw God and lived to tell it. So the phrase, Bir Lahai Roy, means the well of the living one who sees me. Interesting point here. This is the first appearance of the angel of the Lord in the Bible. He didn't first appear to Noah or Enoch or Abram. And as David Gutzik says, he first appeared to a single mother-to-be who had a pride problem and was mistreated by the woman who put her into the whole mess. Look at verse 15. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. It obviously means that she came back, found some way to reconcile so she could stay because she had the child, and that she had talked to Abram, and he believed her. It must have been an incredible conversation. So it tells us at that point that Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Abram believed Hagar, who had believed God, and returned and trusted God by faith. I mean, this is a tremendous picture of what it means to live by faith. These last two verses in the chapter underline the responsibility of Abram for all that has happened. First, his age. 86 years old makes it clear in a dramatic way that Abram's life is running down and the chances of him having another son with Sarai are considered impossible. This is just the place God wants him in. Abram was guilty of attempting to make God's will come true his way rather than waiting in faith and persevering regardless of his or or Sarai's age. Trusting God and living a spirit-filled, God-directed journey will take us further and give us more joy and satisfaction than any temporal shortcut life offers. So I go back to the um, name of the sermon, but I'm in Genesis chapter 16, verse 8, put it on the screen, which says, Hagar, slave of Sarai, the Lord asked, Where have you come from? He knew that. And where are you going? This is worth meditating on. Don't hurry through your Bible readings. Uh, I read a lot of books. And and I'm pretty good at skimming pages. But don't read the Bible that way. Don't skim them. Do you know that that when I read through the Bible every year, I... I always say every name in the Bible. And in some books in the Old Testament, I don't care if I'm pronouncing them right or not. It doesn't matter. God knows. But if, it's, if they're to be in there, God knows them, knew them, knows them still. I want, to, I want to see everything there. And it's amazing over the years. I've never read through the Bible in a following year without finding things that I hadn't found in the 10 or 20 years and more of reading through it from them. 
And this, this is really a, a, an amazing thing. This really made me think. Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? The question is, the searching question is, will we allow God to ask us that question? Hagar was planning to return to Egypt. God asked her to go back into the difficult circumstance she had run from. We should run to the Lord first when troubles hit and not try to figure things out with the world's wisdom or shortcuts. Now let's go to chapter 17 where we're going to finish off. 17, starting with the first two verses. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, now this word for the Lord is El Shaddai, the Lord Almighty, the Lord who can do anything. So, this time it wasn't a vision. You might or might not remember before it was a vision. This wasn't a vision. When Abram was 99 years old, El Shaddai appeared to him, appeared to him, there he was, and said, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. It's all about how we live our Christian life, how we live our lives, the ethics of our lives, our character. So walk before me faithfully faithfully, full of faith, do what I'm telling you to do and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. When we saw what Kevin did last week, I can't even imagine that possibility. But here's what's so amazing. Next three words. Abram fell face down before El Shaddai. Things have changed. Heartfelt worship is a result of full commitment. Abram, whose name is about to change, has already changed in his heart. He had believed God, and it was already credited to him as righteousness, but now his belief had been challenged, and he bows to El Shaddai, God Almighty, who can do the impossible. In Genesis, this is very important, the name El Shaddai shows up when God's servants are hard-pressed, needing reassurance. Let's just go back to think about what it says in the New Testament about faith. James chapter 2, verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. That's just a picture of the gospel. We believe God. Believe what? That he sent Jesus to die for our sins. What else do we believe? We believe that Jesus is God. He became incarnate. That's Christmas and all that. And uh, then he went to the cross and he died for my sins. So all my sins have been forgiven because of the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And that's all credited to me as righteousness. It's always been by faith. I have to do that by faith. I have to believe that that is true. And so that's exactly how... Abram, and Abram became, or Abraham now, we're going to call him in a minute, uh, was saved by faith. That's the way everybody is saved, by faith, faith in Jesus and in what he did and that God sent him and that we are now truly saved and we are God's friend. Jesus said that, that he was our friend. So verse 3 again, Abram fell face down and God said to him, verse 4, I'm going to read a whole bunch here, as for me... This is my covenant with you. 
you will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, which means exalted father. Your name will be Abraham, which means the father of many. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I'll establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Verse 8, the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I'll be their God. I really enjoyed the wedding among two of our younger members this past Sunday. Marriage is a covenant between two people. And in the same way that Joshua and Joy said, I do or I will, God covenant with Abraham to be his God and the God of his descendants forever. The land was and is God's covenant promise to the Jewish people. No one is going to drive them out of the land. So the question comes back to the name of the sermon. Where have you been and where are you going? Or maybe another question, because of a funeral that many of us were at this weekend, very large. What kind of legacy do you plan to leave behind? And you can't, don't say, oh, we have to wait and see. No, no. What kind of legacy do you plan to leave behind? What direction are you going in life? I couldn't help it when on Saturday I was at that incredible uh, funeral service that many in our church were at. Um, I'm asking myself as I looked around at the hundreds of people who were there, I wonder if that many people will be around at my memorial service. And I wonder if any will be able to stand up. What, what do I want them to be able to say about my life? Am I living my life in such a way that they will not be able to say, boy, he really messed up, he treated his wife bad, he, uh, he was this, he was that, and all of that kind of thing. Nobody will be able to say that. Valerie will keep the secrets. <laughs> but, uh, but truly... We need to be planning for our legacy, and it'll get us out of bed in the morning. It'll help us take care of ourselves so we can keep going until the last breath. It'll make a difference in how we live. We must live a long obedience in the same direction. We must live with purpose. And most of all, and that's the one thing I talk about more than anything else, we must be one another people. Whatever the cost that is, it doesn't make any difference. We must be one another people because so many people isolate. They can come to church, but they're... They, they get here late, some, some do, get here late and leave immediately after uh, because they don't really have any friends. And someone who used to come to this church said that just recently uh, as somebody that we were talking about, this person, and the person said, well, I went to Calvary Chapel for years. I never really got to know anybody. How sad. How sad. We need one another. We can't live alone. God didn't make us to be able to. And so if we really want to enjoy life and have the joy of the Lord, which is our strength according to Nehemiah, uh, then we'll be one another people and we'll obey God and we'll be faithful. And when the troubles come, we won't run away, but we'll run to others 
who can help us in the midst of those troubles. So let's pray, and then we'll worship one last time. Father, I just thank you for this story. I, as I read through it, I could see so many, so many things that we all do wrong and how we could do them right. And I see Adam and Eve in there, and it's almost exactly the same story. And now I see Abraham and Sarai. And Father, I don't want Carl and Valerie, I don't want her to have a husband that compromises like Abram did, Abraham. But I do thank you for him. I thank you for choosing him. I thank you for blessing him. And I thank you that because of his ancestry, Jesus came and we're saved. So help all of us here, Father, to know where we're going, to plan for our legacy, to live purposely, and to have a long obedience in the same direction. In Jesus' name, amen.